pathetic. I'm going to be in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14, and I've got an awesome story that I'm going to share with you as I get back into our Be of Good Cheer series. Uh, yesterday was a big day for some of us here in the church. Uh, if you're a member of the Old Fort Gun Club and participate in the Judge Parker's Marshall's shooting event for Cowboy Action Shooting, it was our yearly match and uh, had several Kavanaugh guys shoot. Uh, John Gray Wolf, which is a Don Champ, won his category and brought home a belt buckle. Uh, Keenan Polk, who's known as Cal Polk, won his category, the Wrangler Cal uh, category, brought home a, a belt buckle. I happened to win my category, which is B Western. Of course, I was only shooting against one other guy in B Western, but I did beat him, and uh, I got a belt buckle. So you know what? We're just we're loud and proud about that. So anyway, I'm telling you this because it, it, there's a point to it. Uh, we had about 150 shooters there, over 200 people there. Uh, some of our men with Ray Copeland did all the cooking of the barbecue, brisket and chicken and fed the whole group. And our church was able to have a, uh, an eye there and to be able to witness. And, and it was a great event. Uh, I was introducing everybody who was at the shooting event, and I told them, I said, listen, all you people from all these other states who are here shooting, uh, we at Judge Parker's Marshall believes in four things. Number one, we believe in God. I was preaching to them up there. I was standing on, uh, on the hanging gallows looking down on the people. And I was, we believe in God here. And so we're going to start this event with prayer. And I had Cal Polk do a great prayer. And then I said, secondly, we believe in old glory. And we did the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. And then I said, third thing we believe here at Judge Parker's Marshalls is grace. And I talked to him about the rules and what was considered grace. And then I said, the fourth thing we believe in are guns. <laughs> and let's go shoot them, all right? And, and after I finished, I was thinking about that. I thought, you know what? That would be a great outline for Sunday morning, all right? Here at Kavanaugh, we believe in God. We believe in glory. We believe in grace. And we believe in guns. And as, listen, as wonderful as that is, you think you can't outdo that, man. Yeah, I can. It's right here in Matthew chapter 14. It's an amazing story that we're going to read today. Again, as we get back into our series, Be of Good Cheer, Jesus said, It is I, be not afraid. In fact, there are five times in the Gospels that Jesus spoke this phrase, Be of Good Cheer. And I'll tell you what, it just it blesses my heart when I know Jesus is looking at me saying, Will, be of good cheer. Because so many times I'm not of good cheer, just like some of you. you know, I got my eye on you right now. There's more than one person in this room who needs this message. You need to be of good cheer. Amen? The first time Jesus spoke it was to the paralytic man. Remember, they were at church on church day, and there was a man there who had a withered hand. And he needed to be healed, and so Jesus healed him. He said to the paralytic men, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. So Jesus not only healed this guy on the outside, he healed him on the inside. The second time Jesus used the phrase was to the woman who had the issue of blood. She had been hemorrhaging for 12 years. She had tried medical treatment from every doctor and hospital available to no avail. She heard about Jesus, went to where Jesus was, saw Jesus walking with crowds around him, and she stretched out her hand and touched just the hem of his garment. And Jesus froze. 
because he felt healing power go out of his body. He turned around and said, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has healed you. And she was instantly healed. Now today, he's going to draw on that same expression a third time. And the setting of this story is absolutely amazing. It's dramatic. It's wonderful. It's awesome. So let's read the story in Matthew chapter 14. This same account appears in Mark's gospel chapter 6 and John's gospel chapter 6. But we're going to read it out of Matthew chapter 14. It starts in verse 22. Are you there? No. Are you there? <laughs> Are you out there? All right. Here we go. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there on the mountain. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Well, I hate it when the wind is contrary, don't you? Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the water. And when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were troubled. They were scared to death. They said, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, here it is. Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And so he said, come. Come on, Peter. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to Jesus. He had Jesus' feet. Is that awesome? But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and he began to sink. And so he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped Jesus, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And Lord, we know that you are the Son of God, and so we ask that today you speak to our hearts through this amazing story, for it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, I've preached from this passage before, and I count this as one of my favorite stories in all of the Gospels. Many of us can relate to this story because of personal storms that we've been through. Can, can you? I, man, I can. I can. But perhaps there's been a time when it seems like the Lord has just picked you up and transported you to this scene and dropped you right into the middle of this story and you're right there with the other disciples in the boat on the stormy sea. You know? <laughs> Come on, people. You know what I'm talking about. If that is the case, hopefully you've learned a couple of things. First of all, hopefully you've learned that it's hard to keep your eyes focused on the face of Jesus when in your peripheral vision you're seeing all the wind and the sprays and the wind-driven surf coming at you from the left, right, and center. It's hard. 
We should be honest. It's hard to stay focused on the face of Jesus when you're in the middle of a storm. But hopefully you've learned the second lesson as well. Though it's hard, it is possible to keep focused on the face of Jesus when your peripheral vision is detecting all these other things. It is hard. Come on. It is hard, but it is possible. So turn to your neighbor and say, it is possible. It is possible. We've got to learn to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ despite the splash and the spray of the surf. Because if we don't, we're going to sink like a rock, just like Brother Peter did. All right. Now, as I read this story again this week, I, I saw some things that I had not previously noticed. And I think I can best express it by pointing out four different factors in this story that create an attitude of cheer and joy in our lives even when we're in the midst of a storm. There are four factors that when joined together, when fused together, can create in us joy and can make us cheerful people. So please take out a pen and write these down because, man, we need it, don't we? I'm losing the energy. Come on. Are you ready for the first factor that's going to make you more cheerful? I'm calling it the multitude factor. Now, if, if you go back up in the previous paragraph, you, you read what, what is happening in, in Jesus' life. Uh, J- Jesus had heard the news of his uh, fellow comrade, John the Baptist, being beheaded. So he goes out by himself to a wilderness setting. But when he looks up, all the people from the city has followed him out there. And there are at least 5,000 men, not counting the women or the children. And when Jesus sees the multitude of people, he has compassion on them. He starts healing them and teaching them. And quickly the day passes and it's evening. And so he gathers his disciples and says, send the people home. They've been here all day with nothing to eat. Send them, send them feed them, basically what he said. And they said, Lord, we can't feed them. We don't have anything. And he said, well, go out and see what you do have. And so they went out and they found five loaves and two fishes from a little lad's lunch. And so Jesus took the five loaves and two fishes and he fed the entire multitude. Now that's pretty amazing. Because it's not just 5,000 people he fed. It's closer to 15,000. Maybe 20,000 when you add wives and kids. So that's what Jesus was doing. He was ministering to the multitude. And what I've got to say to you is this, guys. There's got to be purpose and meaning in our lives if we're going to be of good cheer. We've got to have something that we're doing that's bigger than us. And for Jesus and his disciples, that meant ministering to the multitudes. In fact, Matthew tracks this all the way through his gospel. Let me just throw out some verses. Matthew 8, 1. When he, Jesus, had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Matthew 9, 8. Now when the saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Matthew 9, 36. But when he saw the, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep not having a shepherd. Matthew 12, 23. And the multitudes were amazed and said, 
Could this be the son of David? Now understand this. The multitudes Jesus ministered to really represent the millions and billions of men, women, boys and girls whose lives Jesus intends to change. And for you and me to sustain a sense of joy and fulfillment in our own lives, we've got to be doing something that is ministering to the multitudes. That may involve for you some large ministry that you're involved in, or it could mean some small ministry, which unknown to us will produce large dividends in the end. But the point is this. It is not enough for you just to live an ordinary life because God has not called you to do that. God has not called you to just go to work seven days a week, earn a paycheck, enjoy a vacation during spring break or whenever, to buy a new car, to play a video game, to go to movies, to live an ordinary life and die an ordinary death without having changed the world. Because that's why you're here. You're here to make an impact on your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. We are placed here to make a difference. And God intends for each of our lives to have significance. That's why we're here. You're here to minister to people. And Jesus was willing himself to be spent and to spend himself on behalf of the multitudes. And if we're going to have the joy and the cheer and the purpose in our lives that God has for us, there's got to be a multitude factor involved somewhere. We've got to be involved in something that is reaching other people with the good news of Jesus. Because God made us that way. Now some of you are thinking, Preacher, I do my my God business by coming on Sunday mornings and just sitting there and soaking up what you give us. Hallelujah. I just sit and soak. Here's the problem with you coming here just sitting and soaking and not being involved in some kind of ministry. Before long, if that's all you're doing is sitting and soaking, you're going to sour. Because there's got to be an outlet for ministry. So if you just sit and soak, you're going to sour, and sooner or later, you're going to stinketh. Because that's what happens when you sour. And you're not going to be happy and full of joy, and you're not going to be... In fact, let me tell you, read my lips here, listen to me. If you're not involved in some kind of ministry where you're sharing the good news of Jesus with other people and helping other people, you're going to turn in on yourselves. You will not be cheerful. You will be grumpy and mean-spirited. And there will be no joy in your life because the joy of the Lord comes out when we minister His grace to other people. Are you with me? So you've got to be involved in the multitude factor. But secondly, there must also be a solitude factor. Because we need frequent breaks from the multitude. We need time alone, not only by ourselves, but more specifically, time alone with God. Listen to me, friends. Ministering to multitudes is extremely draining. It literally drains the life right out of you. A good preacher friend of mine said, there are some people who are like mosquitoes. They will just fly into the room and suck the life right out of you. But, but that happens when we minister 
to people. Ministering to just one other person can be exhausting. And I think some of you know that because you have done that. You've ministered to someone in your family, maybe who was ill or sick. And and you know how draining it is when you're trying to minister and give to other people. Or, Or maybe you're a Bible study leader or a Sunday school teacher. And you know. I mean, week after week of cranking out lessons and week after week of ministering to the people in your small group, it can be draining. Jesus' ministry itself spanned the gamut between individual ministry and mass ministry. And though he was evidently in prime physical and spiritual shape, Jesus needed rest. And so did his disciples. Notice how he sought to safeguard his time alone. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 36, we read, Then Jesus sent the multitude away. And then in chapter 14, when Jesus receives the tragic news of the murder and martyrdom of his close associate John the Baptist, he he sought some time alone. Matthew 14, 13 says, When Jesus heard, that is, when he heard that John the Baptist had been beheaded he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself but when the multitudes heard of it they followed him on foot from the cities and when Jesus went out he saw the multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and he started ministering to them healing their sick and teaching them but he did more than that the next verses tell us that he fed the multitude by multiplying a little lad's supper. Then in verse 22 we read, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And then he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to a, what is it? By himself to do what? To pray. Now, when evening came, he was there alone, all by himself. He sent the disciples away. He dismissed the multitudes. Why? Because Jesus needed solitude. Jesus needed alone time. He needed time for replenishment. He needed to spend some time with his father. I can remember back in the day when I was at Southwestern Theological Cemetery, Seminary. In Fort Worth, Texas, I'd, I'd graduated from Hillsdale, and I went on to seminary. And Man, I can remember those. It was a great time of learning and uh, expansion. I was being trained to do the work of the ministry. But I, I look back on those days, uh, and I, I just kind of see myself as a, as a, well, I shouldn't say this, but as a thoroughbred horse in the starting gate waiting for the gun to go off so I could get out of there and run, baby, run, and build a church. I was just, man, I was, just, I was ready to go, man. I was ready to get out of cemetery. I was ready to get out there and do the work of the ministry. And so I didn't, I really, if I went, if I went back to seminary now, I would be a much better student, and I would learn a whole lot more. I say that to tell you there's one thing I do remember, because, man, it made an impact on me. The day a professor told our class, he said, guys, if you're not careful, you're going to get out there and burn out in ministry. 
He said, I see it happen all the time. Guys burning out all the time. And he said, I don't want that to happen to y'all, so here's my advice. You need to divert daily, and you need to withdraw weekly. Let me tell you what he meant by that. Divert daily. He said, every day you need to spend time alone with God. It doesn't matter how busy your schedule is or how much stuff you have to do. This has got to be a priority. So whether it's 15, 30 minutes, or an hour, you spend quality time with God every day. Just cut some time out of your schedule and divert daily and spend time with God. He said, secondly, you need to withdraw weekly. You need to spend a couple of hours a week, sometime during the week, and just get alone with God. Maybe, maybe if you live in, in a mountainous region, climb a mountain. Or if there's a, a lake or a pond or a stream, go down and take a walk by the creek or whatever it is. But no matter where you are, you find time with God. And spend a couple of hours with God as you withdraw weekly. Let me tell you, I've not always done that, but I cherish that advice. Because I need that. You know what? You need that. I know a pastor of a large church who said, I've learned that if I'm always available, then I'm never available. He went on to say, if I'm always available, I become so drained and so tired and so depleted that I don't have anything to give anyone when I am available. I need time to recharge, to replenish, to cultivate my own soul, to stay fresh for the ministry that God has given to me. And guys, that's not just for preachers. That's for all believers. We've got to find God time, solitude time where we replenish our own back. Because if we don't, can I tell you what's going to happen? We are going to burn out. Not only do preachers burn out, I see church people burn out. It happens all the time. And usually what happens after they burn out, they get out. Don't let that happen to you. Divert daily, withdraw weekly. If that doesn't connect with you, I'll, I'll tell you something that might. Our, our lives have become so dependent on our cell phones and electronic devices, haven't they, you know? I got an iPhone that I just live with. I, I mean, I got this watch thing here. What is this called, Zane? It's an Apple watch thing. Earth, Earth, beam me up, Scotty, beam me up. If I, listen, if I don't recharge this thing every night, if I don't take my phone and plug it in and recharge it every night, it won't last the next day. By noontime, the battery's gone, and then I get real frustrated. Then I get real mean and gripey and angry. Yeah, are you with me? Because my, my, my device has lost its charge. Well, you know what? It's the same thing with us physically and spiritually. If we don't find solitude time, our batteries are going to run dry. And so there has to be the solitude factor. And again, I'm telling you this. If you don't have that, you, you're not going to be cheerful. If you're run down and drained... You're not going to be cheerful. You're going to be what? Grumpy. Miss Angie knows that word because she puts a mister in front of it when she speaks to me sometimes. She can do that. You can't. Right? But, but now I want you to notice this. While Jesus was, was up on the hillside enjoying his time with the Father, the disciples were where? 
They, they were down in the lake in a crisis situation. And it brings us to the third factor in having a cheerful attitude. I'm calling it the fortitude factor. Look at verse 24. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the water. Now back in the Romans' time, they had a different way of keeping time. In fact, the night was divided up into four different segments or watches. And the fourth watch was the last watch of the night. It was somewhere between the hours of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. These disciples had been out on the water all night long, struggling and straining. And Jesus just left them there to struggle from probably 8 p.m. until maybe 4 a.m. the next morning. Jesus just left them there. He, he did not solve their problem instantly. Don't you hate it when Jesus doesn't solve our problems instantly? But he wanted them to learn something. It was a teaching time for them. Just as surely as when they were sitting at his feet listening to a sermon, the Lord was teaching them something here. And the thing he was teaching them is sometimes you got to hang out in your problems and in your storms. Jesus isn't always going to come instantly and rescue us. He lingers and delays and watches, as it were, from a distance. But all the time he sees what's going on. And all the time Jesus is praying for us up in the mountains while we are struggling in the stormy sea below. Because here's the deal. Listen to this. Jesus is more interested in developing our faith than he is in relieving our distress. Now, don't turn me off because Jesus is concerned with your distress. And he will relieve you of your distress in his own way and in his own timing. In fact, the Bible tells us 34 different times that we are to be strong. Be strong. And, and I can just take from that, if it tells us 34 times to be strong, it's doing it on a purpose because there's going to be a lot of times when we need God's strength. When our strength is not enough, but His strength is. We can't be strong on our own, but we can be strong on His promises and in His grace. In fact, just listen to a couple of verses. Deuteronomy 31.6 tells us to be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. How about Joshua 1.9? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid or dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I love Isaiah 35, 3. Strengthen the weak hands and mark firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come and save you. And then you got to love Ephesians 6, 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Can you say amen? Amen. And so Jesus came to them walking on the water, walking across 
the billowing waves, making his way through the storm. He's stepping on these white caps like they were stones. Isn't that awesome? Can't you just see Jesus walking across there? And as he approached the boat, he he shouted above the surf, and he hollered above the howling winds these words that are etched in our hearts and echo in our mind. Three little sentences. Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. Man. So, church, listen to me. Whatever your storm, whatever your gale, whatever your struggle, you have total access through His grace to the same three short, simple sentences Jesus spoke back then. Be of good cheer. It is I. You don't have to be afraid. Those words are a great encouragement. Even though you don't look like it right now, that is amazing, isn't it? Come on, be, just kind of come aboard right now. Get in the boat with me. That is pretty cool. You think about it. No matter what your storm is, Jesus is saying, hey, hey, it's me. I'm here. Be of good cheer. It's nothing to fear. In fact, it was so encouraging that Brother Peter did something wild and crazy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Man, I... You know what? I think most of y'all, even though you're not gone somewhere on spring break, you're mourning this morning. It is kind of a funeral because you wanted to be gone. No, anyway, I won't go. L- listen to what happened here. Verse 28. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, <laughs> command me to come to you on the water. And so Jesus said, come on, Peter. That's the Arkansas version of that. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and he began to sink. And so he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught Peter and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, listen to this, when they got into the boat, what happened to the wind? Man, just like that, it stopped. And those who were in the boat came and worshiped Jesus, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, if you're like me, the favorite part of the story to me is this part right here. When Peter does this wild and crazy thing, man. Because I've often placed myself right there with Peter. What would I have done? Would I have been like Peter? Would I have gotten out on the boat? And if I did get on the boat like Peter, would I have taken my eyes off Jesus? Do you ever wonder that? I think too many times we doggo Peter. We, we badmouth Peter right here because he did sink like a rock. And, and we hear those chiding words of Jesus. Peter, what, what, what's wrong, dude? What, why didn't you have enough faith, man? You, you, you didn't have enough faith. But you know what? Here's the deal. Listen to me. At least Peter had a little bit of faith. Now, there were 11 other dudes in the boat that didn't even get out on the water. I could preach a sermon about that because most of us are like the 11 who stayed in the boat. Well, Peter, Brother Peter, if you feel like you need to go out there, go on, brother. I'll be praying for you. I'm going to stay right here and pray for you as you go out there on the water with Jesus. We're going to be, we're behind you. 
Let's vote on this. All in favor of Peter going out there, raise your hand. But did, at least he had faith. Uh-huh. But even bigger than that, there is an overreaching lesson to this entire story that you can't miss. We're going to have storms in our life. Mark it down. You've probably been through a few. You've got some battle scars. I know you have. We are going to have storms in life. But we've got a Savior who can step over those storms. Woo! Man, you know, that's a good time to clap because that's awesome. He can just walk across them. When in the midst of the storm, we focus on the storm, we're going to sink beneath it. When in the midst of the storm, we focus on our Savior, we're going to rise above it. And that's the fortitude factor. We've got to have faith. And our faith needs to be increasing every day. That leads me to the final element of this story. It's called the gratitude factor. How does the story end? Real quick, it ends like this. With thanksgiving, <laughs> with praise, with worship, and with awe. Look at verse 33. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped Jesus, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And they worshiped him. Now, let's take a snapshot of that. Let, let's freeze frame 4 a.m. Because I think that's when this happened. 4 a.m., Jesus is in the boat. All of a sudden, that storm, the gale-forced wind ceases, and the water is as calm as in your bathtub. 4 a.m. Kodak moment. You old people know what I was just doing right there. <laughs> you, young people, you don't have the foggiest idea what I just did. So we took in a picture at 4 o'clock. Let's back it up to 3 o'clock. Freeze frame. Now we're comparing the two pictures. Just see these two pictures just for a second, okay? At 3 o'clock, exhaustion. These disciples, even though most of them had been fishermen, they have now been on the water for seven or eight hours, laboring, working, toiling, rowing, to no avail. And they're wore out. They're tired. Their strength is gone. Three o'clock, exhaustion. Four o'clock, exaltation. Because Jesus is in the boat. Go back and look at the three o'clock picture anguish and worry these guys were scared to death have you ever been out in the middle of a lake when a storm blows up in a boat it can be frightening all right so that's what they are in three o'clock anguish and worry four o'clock picture awe and worship jesus is there at three o'clock acting as though jesus had forgotten them and the storm had beaten them. At 4 o'clock, realizing that Jesus had not forgotten them for one moment, and that he is greater than the storm. <laughs> you know what faith is? You know what great faith is? Great faith is knowing at 3 o'clock that 4 o'clock's coming. 
I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It is replacing worry with worship and doing it through faith. When the disciples looked out into the howling darkness at 3 o'clock, they couldn't see Jesus. But Jesus could see them. Even at that very moment, he was making his way down that mountain, spreading out an invisible carpet runner across the waves coming in their direction. But he was doing it in his own timing because he wanted to develop their spiritual muscles and to teach them that they had to trust him even during the middle of the storm. You see, the, the faith that pleases Jesus is being at good cheer at 3 o'clock because we know that Jesus is going to make all things work together for good at 4 o'clock. And you're willing to wait patiently for his perfect timing. The faith that pleases Jesus is the faith that adopts a 4 o'clock attitude in a 3 o'clock storm. It's the faith that has etched in its heart the words of Jesus, be of good cheer, it is I, don't be afraid. <laughs>